Good evening and welcome to the 19th edition of the Political Mike podcast. Uh, folks, we are here. Uh, election day is in less than 24, well, officially less than 24 hours. Um, this is being described by many pundits uh, and by many political leaders and figures as the most important election of our lifetime. And it goes without saying that the stakes couldn't be higher. Um, we are seeing two drastic, uh, different, two differently, dra two drastically different candidates running uh, to be the president of the United States for the next four years. Um, so much to talk about. Tensions are running high. Um, I'm not going to give introductions tonight. Instead, we're just going to dive right in uh, to the topics of discussion. And, you know, this news breaking even within the, the past few hours. But I want to start off by talking about the, the tightening polls. Um, the polls, uh, according to Quinnipiac, a Quinnipiac poll that came out today, show that in Florida, a swing state that will determine so much uh, in terms of the outcome of this election, 47% of likely voters support Biden, while 42% support President Trump. Um, and this is, a, you know, this is a very important um, state for one. You've got a large Latino population in that state. And the narrative so far has been that Biden is not doing as well as he should in with, with among Latino voters. Um, but you also have, you know, a lot of uh, Haitian Americans in the state. You have um, a lot of Caribbean Americans in the state. Um, and so this state is so diverse and there's so much to unpack with just looking at the underlying factors that come into play with these polls. Um, Ohio, a huge state that Republicans seem to have secure, but now uh, Bloomberg has invested his money and allocated some of his resources uh, to campaign ads in that state. The state of Texas is now up in, in, in the air now, it seems, as a state that potentially Democrats can flip, looking at Harris County, Culberson County, um, states that Beto O'Rourke was able to flip uh, against Ted Cruz. Um, and of course, uh, Congressman O'Rourke has been on the ground, um, been very active in terms of trying to ensure that Texas could be in the Democratic column, which hasn't been uh, the case since 1976 when Jimmy Carter was running. Um, so, you know, we're in uncharted territory already. But I want to open up the floor about what these polls could potentially mean and what we could, what should we be looking for tomorrow? Um, there's a lot of hype going on right now on the internet and on uh, cable news networks about what to anticipate for uh, tomorrow evening. But I want to start off by, you know, a realistic standpoint of what we could expect to see uh, this time tomorrow evening. Professor Foster. Well, I think the most interesting or one of the most interesting things to look at is what will happen in North Carolina um, as well as Florida. Um, <clears throat> Texas, I want to believe, is competitive. If Texas is competitive, then that will change the landscape of politics for the next generation. Um, I think by rights, demographically, it should be competitive. Um, uh, but Barack Obama carried North Carolina in uh, 2008. So it, it, it is flippable. And uh, given the voter suppression that happened uh, two years ago in Georgia, Georgia should also be competitive. So I'm interested more to see what's going to happen in the Southeast than anywhere else in the country. Uh, I say that because um, Pennsylvania and, and the, the Midwest is always where uh, you look, but I think the change will come in the South and the Southeast. 
And it's interesting you say that because Georgia is also a state that has been heavily uh, invested in by both sides now. Um, Georgia, which has has not gone uh, Democratic since 1992 when Bill Clinton was challenging George H.W. Bush. And so Democrats see that, you know, Trump's polling numbers remind them of the days of George H.W. Bush and, and that provides them some kind of motivation to go after the state of Georgia. Um, Christian, do you think that this is uh, the Democrats getting ahead of themselves? Because I remember in 2016, um, there was a narrative that potentially Hillary Clinton could even win Texas over. Um, are we going to see a similar situation play, play out based on uh, your perspective? My perspective is wait and see. Um, it certainly seems like trust has been lost in polling. Uh, I, I was actually a major of political science and had confidence in polling. Um, so we'll see. Yeah. Just um, what do you think, Mike? Well, I think, I think, you know, for one, um, I think no matter the outcome, I think we're going to see some surprises. Um, I think that, you know, Democrats would over outperform um, their counter their Republican counterparts in the state of Georgia. Um, and I think it's going to be reflective also in the Senate races. You know, I think that, you know, there was something going for Trump when he's when he promised uh, to drain the swamp. Mm. But I think there was a lot of folks who said you know, they were tired of, um, you know, these figures in Washington, D.C. who seem to be part of the furniture so much so that they seem to forget about issues that pertain to them locally. And I think Jamie Harrison has capitalized on that. I think it was evident in the debate when he when Jay, uh, when uh, Lindsey Graham constantly tried to portray him as a national liberal like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or Bernie Sanders. And Jamie Harrison kept ha trying to say, hey, let's bring it back home to South Carolina. I think that's indicative of what's going around the country. Um, Arizona is an also also a case in point where you have the senator there, the sitting Republican senator, not willing to say on a debate stage that she's going, she supports enthusiastically Donald Trump. Um, but Chris, I'm interested in getting your take. You're in Pennsylvania, you're on the ground. Pennsylvania is a huge state um, in this election. Um, I think besides Florida, that state really determines you know the 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 different avenues that Biden has towards the presidency. What are you seeing on the ground, and what are your thoughts as to how things will play out in the battleground state of Pennsylvania? Well, I'm proud to say that all eyes will be on Pennsylvania um, starting tomorrow morning. Um, and as you know, uh, both campaigns have really um, put laser focus on the Commonwealth. Um, including other states that are, are part of the Midwestern belt, um, including Ohio, Michigan, and Wisconsin. But I really do believe that Pennsylvania may be the Florida of this election, where, um, you know, whether it's on election night or days after the election, um, all of America will be looking to see what the final vote count will be. Um, and part of that is because Biden has, Joe Biden has had really strong roots here in Pennsylvania. He's a child of Scranton. And, um, he uh, was a senator in our neighboring state of Delaware, and so we are very familiar with him. Um, however, much like much of the parts, a lot of parts of uh, Pennsylvania, a lot of people really did support Donald Trump, and they went for him surprisingly um, in 2016, where he was able to claim 20 electoral college votes. And so since then, since 2016, um, the Democratic Party has really been laser focused on winning back that blue wall, those blue wall states. 
um, that surprised us all uh, four years ago. Like I did not think that Pennsylvania, Wisconsin and Michigan were going to be uh, claimed by Trump. You know, those were the states that we just knew, you know, if we didn't win Florida, if we didn't win North Carolina, we had these three states, you know, kind of in our bag and they, they were ripped away from us. And so um, one of the good things about Pennsylvania is uh, Supreme Court allowed for mail-in ballots to arrive up to three days after election day and they will be counted. And so what we're trying to do right now on the ground is just try to allow for voters to understand that patience is truly going to be the biggest virtue um, <laughs> uh, on election day. Um, do not expect an outcome or a declaration unless the lead is really far and really high, which is unlikely here. Unless the lead is really high, uh, we should not expect the result until later in this week or, or beyond. So just trying to keep people patient, do what they can to get out the vote and um, let the powers be um, going forward. Yeah, it's, it's a good thing that you brought that out because, um, you know, North Carolina, the law is that nine days after the, the third, which is tomorrow, uh, votes can be accepted by the Board of Elections. Um, so every state, uh, we're seeing that every state is taking a different approach to how they're going to count their ballots. Um, but what's interesting is that this year seems to have smashing records of voter turnout already. 72% of the 2016 uh, total vote has already been in. Um, when you're looking at mail-in ballots cast, you have 63,471,568 votes. In-person votes, 35,167,850 votes. The total amount, 98,639,418 votes in total. Um, and I think a lot of Democrats are feeling enthusiasm um, com comparable to levels of 2008. Um, but of course, there's a lot of fear behind you know, getting ahead of ourselves because there could be a Trump, a secret Trump vote out there. Garrison, what are your thoughts? Do you think that there are there are uh, a group of individuals who are not making their opinions known to pollsters, uh, but on election day, they're going to come out in droves and numbers that surprise uh, political experts again? Um, sorry, I'm late, first off. Um, but yeah, I, I think already with the unaffiliated votes that we've already seen in North Carolina, a ton of those voters have already somewhat cast their ballots. I think traditionally we know that Republicans and conservatives typically go out on election day to actually cast their ballot. So people that are sitting on the fence, I I feel at this point they've made up their mind. I think they're going to go, if they haven't already, on November 3rd. And I, as to like what party they're going to go for, unaffiliated, I feel like probably I'm a, the ones that haven't voted, I think a majority of them would go Democrat. The ones that um, there's a minority, I think, of unaffiliated voters that will vote Republican this year. That's really interesting. And, and you know, I know you're coming from the state of North Carolina, which is also now a battleground state when you have a really competitive Senate race between um, you have Tom Tillis running against. Um, I'm sorry, <laughs> his name escaped me. Um, Clyde. Kyle Cunningham. Uh, Kyle Cunningham. Kyle Cunningham. Um, you know, very interesting race because what you have with Kyle Cunningham is a situation where he seems to have been getting away with a, a sizable lead uh, for a traditionally Republican state. But then all of a sudden, a, a texting scandal happens. 
And the idea was that this was going to be the thing that tanks him. Um, but surprisingly, he's still been able to manage a league. It wasn't as big as it was before, but he's been able to maintain a lead above Tillis. Um, and I'm wondering if this is indicative of a momentum across the country when you're looking at states in South Carolina, when you're looking at Colorado, Arizona, Montana, with Steve Bullock running against um, uh, Danes. You have, you know, Democrats looking at each state. And I, I, you know, have to take a step back and say, you know, each of these candidates seem to be specifically perfectly tailored for their state. I think this race actually has a lot of good candidates running um, and it's very competitive. But uh, Nate, what are your thoughts on that? What kind of Senate races are you looking at? And do you think that the presidential, only the presidential election will not be called? Or do you think we can call some Senate races by tomorrow evening? Hopefully we'll be able to call some Senate races. Um, personally, the races I'm looking at include the ones out West, like Montana and Colorado, um, as well as the South Carolina race. I know uh, Harrison is technically a long shot, but I would not be surprised at all to see him win there. Um, I'm also paying attention to the Georgia elections. We've got, uh, where, uh, where two elections this year, one is John Ossoff for a six year term, the other is uh, fronted, uh, the Democratic contender on that side is Raphael Warnock, the senior pastor of the Ebenezer Baptist Church, facing off against Kelly Loeffler and Doug Collins to see who, go, uh, who wins there. And it's actually not really out of the question for Democrats to win both there, even if it doesn't happen uh, t uh, tomorrow night. Uh, as you all know, in Georgia, you need 50% in order to claim full victory, otherwise you go to a runoff. But the Montana race interests me for uh, a pretty big reason. Governor Bullock is one of the few people, one of the few people with a D next to the name on the ballot that can win a statewide race there. And although he has been down in the polls, pretty much every poll has had him within the margin of error. Um, also, this is a state that four years ago Trump carried by around 20 points. Bullock was reelected by a very thin margin, but this time around Trump is only leading by about seven. So. It's not really a good sign for the incumbent, especially when Bullock has been praised by Montanans across the aisle uh, for his response to the coronavirus uh, pandemic. So there, um, same with Colorado, where that race looked originally to be kind of a toss-up until John Hickenlooper left the presidential race and decided he was going to focus his attention on the Senate. And what that looks like, if the Democrats are able to take back the Senate, it looks like there's a new balance of power that shifts westward because then you've got uh, a Democrat in Montana, a Democrat in Colorado that helped you kind of take back the balance of power. So uh, it's very interesting to see uh, committee assignments and things of that nature. Yeah, I'm glad that you took that national approach as to, you know, state by state. Um, you know, when it comes down to certain races, there's certain races like the one in Alabama that you just have a gut feeling and based on looking at polling and everything, that's just indicating to go towards the Republican side when you've got Doug Jones going against Tommy Tuberville. And it was such an anomaly to have Doug Jones. Um, I remember the surprise that took place in December of 2017. Um, but at the same time, he was running against a candidate where, you know, it, it, it wasn't just one person coming out with allegations, but it, it was one after the other. And it got to a point where you couldn't just look past it. That seemed to define um, Roy Moore's candidacy. Um, but when you also look at you know, Alaska, you, you kind of know, okay, the Republicans are going to win that, but it seems like the amount of states that are up in the air have increased this year. Usually there's about two or three states that people can't really call um, early on, but this time 
you're looking at Arizona. You know, Mark Kelly, who's an astronaut, famous astronaut, who his wife was a victim of gun violence, uh, Gabby Giffords. Um, she's rose into national prominence since then. Um, you're looking at, like you had mentioned, John Hickenlooper, former co uh, Colorado governor, very popular governor. Um, he was running for president. Um, he didn't seem like he had a legitimate shot in the presidential run, but I think that race actually helped raise his national profile. Um, Bullock running against Danes. You know, I've seen a lot of YouTube ads over the course of this whole election cycle with uh, Trump, Trump Jr., um, you know, Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio asking for donations for their friend, Danes. Um, but I'm wondering if, because there's always that narrative that when you nationalize the race, that helps Republicans. But if you make things local, if you kind of spend less time trying to fly in celebrities and, and, and fly in guest speakers and national figures, that actually works in the Democrats' favor. Cassandra, your thoughts? Um, on flying in celebrities or like having some kind of like national versus local, like boring government. Yeah. Like when races become nationalized, uh, you know, do you, do you believe that certain races in this election have become nationalized? And if they have, do you think that that will work in one party's favor above the other? Well, Certain elections, I think, this uh, cycle have gotten a lot more uh, focus, I think, nationally, purely because of the ripple effect they're going to have. Uh, the one that comes up in my mind specifically is McConnell. Um, I, I feel like more and more people of, like, every day don't really know much about politics, are becoming more and more aware of specific politicians that have a lot of pull in the national sphere, and McConnell being uh, the... Uh, majority head in the Senate, you know, um, <laughs> it's funny, like, this is the first time around that I've had discussions with people, and uh, they get upset about Congress as like a, a, uni like a uniform body. Um, but they're, they're starting to become a more engaged um, conversation where people are like, wait, what's the difference between the Senate and the House? And then you have to be like, okay, well, we did cover this in ninth grade, but here we go. And then they're like, oh, okay, so that means that this person is responsible for this thing. And it's it's interesting because these are things that really we should all know and be engaged in and have that. Um, but I think it's been a bit of a disservice to the country as a whole to focus a little too much on locality versus national um, or only on your own locality versus like the impacts of somewhere else because it's very easy to say, okay, I'm from Kansas, so it's really only important people to look for the senators from Kansas and some of the Congress people. But um, I'm seeing now, especially after 2016, really, but even before that, um, when people were pushing for Hillary, there's been a much larger engagement with younger people. And I think that that has benefited the Democratic Party more than anyone else. Um, that said, we've been seeing so many more voter, su voter suppression efforts this time around that are very bald-faced. They're not even trying to hide behind technical legality or anything, really. It seems just um, almost desperate. You can read that either as desperation, which means that the Democrats have a very strong you know, possibility, or you can read that as they might win through potentially morally ambiguous or morally bankrupt means. So um, I'm anxious. I want to have hope 
that this is something that will um, shake people into realizing that um, the Republican Party as it stands is kind of just holding us hostage um, rather than genuinely uh, representing some kind of values. If they did, I think that there could be a real genuine discussion back and forth. But with the context of what you said, national versus localized, people paying attention to the national is going to benefit at least in public opinion, the Democratic Party more. That's my read on it, at least. No, that's good. And I'm glad that you brought out voter suppression because that's a factor um, that has been, you know, this is the second election without the full protections of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Since 2013 with Shelby versus Holder, which removed Section 5, uh, removed Section 4B of the Voting Rights Act, you have a situation now where all of these states don't have to check in with the attorney general's office. They can enact these laws, these 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 barriers, these hoops uh, that folks have to jump through. Um, they can eliminate same day registration. They can enforce that you have a, a photo with you. Um, all of these different tactics that historically statistics show, nonpartisan statistics have a uh, effect on uh, minority uh, voting turnout. So I'm wondering, if certain states like Texas, which Beto O'Rourke has, you know, he's been on the program and he told me backstage, he said, look, I'm asking uh, Joe Biden, I'm asking Kamala Harris to come and invest time um, in the state of Texas because this could actually be something that they regret if they don't do this. Um, Georgia, you know, President Obama's on the stump. Um, states that they, they historically are not winning, but they're, they're, they're playing offense now. I'm wondering if the voter suppression tactics do have a, do play a factor and how well they actually perform in states that are Southern states, states that historically have uh, records of voter discrimination. Professor Foster. You're on mute, I'm sorry. Before I answer your question directly, I just wanna say this about voter suppression um, and the Voting Rights Act really, is that the biggest, um, the biggest, change from the gutting of the Voting Rights Act is the shifting of the burden of proof from those who have been discriminated against uh, to, um, well, for, excuse me, from those who were discriminating to those who have been discriminated against. And that is now you must not only prove that you've been discriminated against, but the intent of the change was discriminatory. Um, that emboldens, because if you look at uh, just what happened in 2014, the year after the Voting Rights Act was gutted, you see uh, explicit voter suppression from the very same states that preclearance applied to. So it's not a myth. And I think uh, I take Justice Roberts at, at his word that he thought that things had changed. But it's not a myth that these uh, bad actors were under preclearance. It was for a reason. Um, but I also think that that reason is is the reason that uh, perhaps the the electoral map may change for a generation, because in Georgia, in North Carolina, uh, even in Alabama, we you know two years ago we we elected Doug Jones uh, by a margin of 30,000 votes, but to have a democratically elected uh, senator in Alabama is notable. Um, 
Uh, states like Florida are kind of in flux because you have the dynamic of uh, Cuban Latinos who are historically um, Republican, but you also have an influx of other Latinos and um, uh, others who have migrated from the North who are tending to trend Democratic. I think the biggest change in Florida is actually the seniors who are now um, coming back to the Democratic Party who voted for Trump maybe for their tax cuts, but they see that COVID and other things are literal, literal threats to their lives. So, uh, and then the other thing, the ho other hopeful sign for those of us from the liberal side of the aisle is that young voters are voting in record numbers in states, in key states like Florida. And that is the most hopeful sign for me. Um, but very quickly, the thing that gives me the most pause is the purposefulness of the uh, chaos that Donald Trump has telegraphed that he will throw into the mix uh, starting tomorrow night. And that chaos is purposed to not only decrease uh, people's confidence in democracy, but also to um, do what uh, Putin wants done, which is for people to discount democracy, uh, not only in the United States, but around the world. So I think tomorrow night will be uh, a historic night, but in an important night for the whole notion of democracy worldwide. You know, and, and you raised an important point, Professor, because tonight, you know, news broke that the White House is erecting a um, non-scalable fence around the White House. You know, when have we ever had an election where the night before they've had to take such a precaution? You know, tensions are increasingly um, high. And I, I think Jay Johnson, the former Secretary of Homeland Security, said on CNN, he said, look, I've never, you know, seen an election with so much tension before. You know, tensions could, could not possibly be higher. And so no matter what the outcome is, you know, even if there's no official, you know, winner of the Magic 270 electoral votes, um, I think that we're going to see more violence, no matter what. I think that we're going to see uh, chaos. I think we're going to see riots. Um, but I do think that's the result of what we've seen over the past four years. You know, this is not just falling out the sky. This is bubbled over, you know, from Charlottesville and before. Um, and, and so, you know, when we're looking at these uh, situations, we have to look at it, and I encourage folks to look at it, as one long story, you know, it's so easy to pinpoint different stories here and there in isolation. But when you take the story and and kind of connect it with what was going on last year, what was going on the year before, things don't seem as uh, random as as the media may portray it to be. Um, but I want to go ahead and continue talking a little bit about Senate races because specifically there was a race, you know, in Kentucky, Mitch McConnell, the lead, the House, the Senate House Majority Leader. Uh, going going up against a, a veteran, Amy McGray. And in the debate they had recently, what came up was COVID-19 relief. And, um, you know, he had said he had said that the House Democrats uh, did not take any action in terms of getting COVID-19 relief passed. McGrath responds, well, the House passed a bill, you know, the House passed the HEROES Act. And so he, he laughs in response. And a lot of folks have focused on that laughter as a highlight of the debate. And to me, I thought it was indicative of him being confident that he will win. Um, 
Mackenzie, um, now that I have you, I want to get your thoughts in that race. Um, how do you think that's going to turn out? What do you think that meant in okay, terms of okay. Kyle's response? I feel like everyone is scared. I feel like people know that their time is coming to a close. Everyone knows it. Donald Trump even knows it. Those rallies that he goes and he stands and he laughs and he talks on, that is pure fear. He knows that his time is coming to a close, in my opinion. And honestly, I feel like the fear is, is um, kind of in the wrong audience. The The media is trying to, you know, make this election be some type of scare tactic. You know, people are scared. You know, they're worried about what's gonna happen tomorrow. They're, are we not gonna have a president? I mean, when are we gonna know who the president's gonna be? You know, is this gonna be a turn out to be a thing where Donald Trump refuses to, you know, um, sit, you know, sit, sit, sit down, you know, move on. What is gonna happen? But honestly, I feel like it's all for nothing. By 10 o'clock tomorrow, I feel like we're going to know who won the president, the presidency. I genuinely believe that this is going to be a race that is not going to, you know, be one that everybody is trying to make it out to be. They're scaring people. And honestly, I don't think it's a, it's a, it's a good thing at the moment, considering all that we're going through. So I feel like everybody just needs to kind of calm down because I feel like, you know, at the end of the day, people are going to make the right choice, regardless of party regardless. You know, and you actually made a prediction that was very familiar. Uh, James Carville, uh, the former uh, campaign manager of Bill Clinton's 1992 presidential run, had predicted repeatedly on, on cable news networks that it's going to be an early, decisive win in favor of Biden. Uh, Jerry, your thoughts? You you know, you, you've been involved with radio. You've been on the ground in Texas, especially um, and I'm really curious to get your thoughts as to whether you think it's going to be as decisive or as early um, as McKenzie expressed. Yeah, I think it's going to be pretty decisive. Um, you know, I'm, I'm looking at Arizona as being a really big state because, you know, I think both candidates today have spent a lot of time in Pennsylvania. And that's a state that Trump has to win. But, you know, Biden has his backup plan that, you know, if he doesn't win Pennsylvania, he has his route through Arizona and some other states to still get him to 270. Uh, but it seemed as if Trump has you really just only one route where he has to really run the table. I think when you look at, you know, I'm down here in Texas, and I think a lot of Democrats would tell you this, and I know you talked to Beto a couple of weeks ago, but Texas has never really been a red state. What Texas Democrats would say, says, it, you know, would be that Texas has been like a non-voting state. We've been a state that has been ranked maybe 49th, 48th in the country in voting. And that had a lot to do with some of the Republicans, uh, you know, in control of really the local elections here. But as what we have seen here, like in Harris County, we finally have a uh, election uh, clerk who is doing everything he can to invest in um, our elections and to make sure that, you know, the elections are as convenient and as accessible as possible. And you're seeing record numbers here, you know, in, in Harris County, where we have more voters and more early voters in Harris County than we had in Nevada, the entire state in Nevada in their entire 2016 total. Right. So there's going to be a big, I think, story tomorrow night on Election Day uh, because, you know, people think, well, you know, Hillary lost Texas by nine points in 2016. Texas is a deep red state. Well, Beto lost maybe by like two points, right, in 2018. 
Um, and there has been this demographic change and not in the way that I think a lot of people has been talking about it. When people talk about demographic change, they're talking about, they're thinking about like a big influx of la the Latino population to Texas. The population change that I'm really seeing is really, um, there's been two states that have really lost a lot of residents. I think California and Illinois, and most of those residents from California are moving to Texas. And you're kind of starting to see that in your metro areas in Houston and Dallas and Austin, um, that you have you know, really this, this migration of people from other states who are coming from more liberal states to Texas. Uh, so I, I really think that there's gonna be um, a decisive victory tomorrow. Um, I think the, the states you have to look out for is Arizona. Um, I'm hoping for Texas, but you know, if you have a Florida or you have just a Pennsylvania or you know, Michigan and Wisconsin, Biden has so many different routes to win this thing. Uh, but I, I do think that, you know, you know, I think people need to look at Texas a little more seriously because, you know, as I said earlier, Texas is not a red state. We've been a non-voting state. And now we're going to see tomorrow what our state really looks like when people go out and vote. And, and I'm glad you portrayed the picture because um, a lot of folks are confused as to what to anticipate in terms of, you know, usually election night, you see the state's glow red or blue depending on who won the state and you, you see who's the winner of the electoral votes in that state uh, but you portrayed that the biden camp actually is looking at different routes around losing florida um but if they you know florida has 29 electoral votes if they lose florida um pennsylvania michigan wisconsin they've got to win those 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 the rust belt um but you also you know portrayed what the underlying factors are in the state of texas because there's a lot of talk about Texas turning blue, but when you look at the demographics, that's what that's where the conversation uh, should be taking place. Um, Arizona, key state. Um, I know that this was a state that you know this uh, it'll be something out of the ordinary usually for uh, a Democrat to win that state. Um, I think Bill Clinton won it in '96 against Bob Dole, um, but that was also a landslide election. Um, but you know there are different paths to victory that don't include Florida. But if those other paths of victory don't go the way the Democrats want, Florida might be the thing that really pulls everything apart. Um, you know, in 2000, um, there was a saying, I think Russert, Tim Russert had said, Florida, 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 because Florida in that election was a key state. But I think, Chris, you pointed out Pennsylvania is going to be that state for this year. You know, so... All eyes, I think, are on multiple states. There's not one state in this election that I think will be the key determining factor that pundits go back to in history to say this was the state that determined it. I think it's going to be multiple states. Uh, Garrison, your thoughts? Do you agree? Or I think it's going to be a super close race. I don't think we're going to know who wins tomorrow night. I think it's going to be a month out. I think Florida is going to be the state that we're going to be looking towards. Um, and I think it – I. I seriously doubt, unless it's a landslide, which it very well, Mel, very well could be. But if it's not, we're we're going to be waiting for like a month or so. When I I and I think there's more of a chance of that happening than it actually being a landslide this year. There's too many votes that have already been cast. People know who they want to be president, and our nation is split right down the middle right now. So it could honestly go either way, and I think it's going to be drawn out. So let's transition a little bit to the legal battle that might unfold. Um, the U.S. District Court Judge Andrew Hannon in Texas, uh, Harris County, Texas, specifically threw out a lawsuit, a lawsuit today.
that was challenging the legality of some 127,000 votes cast at a drive through voting site um, in the Houston area. Um, Jerry, that's your territory. The judge ruled out that the plaintiffs don't have legal standing. Um, now, as a law student, I know that that means that the plaintiff, in this case, those who are alleging that those 127,000 votes should be thrown out, they didn't suffer an injury in fact, or the, the injury is one that was legally that was a legally protected interest, um, which is A, concrete, or B, um, actual or imminent. Or it could be that the judge felt that the, the, the plaintiff had to have a causal connection with their harm uh, between the injury and the conduct bought before the court, or it has to likely be, it has to be likely rather than speculative that these 127,000 votes uh, were illegal or should have been uh, cast aside. Regardless of how the court came to its conclusion, it came to the conclusion that there was no standing. Um, and I think this is going to be indicative of how we're looking at, you know, piecemeal approaches as to different courts across the country, federal courts, on how they approach uh, this situation. So the legal battle that we're hearing about, a lot of these, uh, you know, battles are going to be fought in these federal courts. Now, the thing is, President Trump has filled in, I believe, over 400 uh, federal district court and appellate court uh, judge positions um, since the Obama administration left office. Uh, Mr. Stephen Foster, if you're with me, um, I want to get your thoughts as to how this legal battle can can play out. And also, you know, the fact that Trump has not promised or conf confirmed that he would accept the election results without this battle. How do you think that's going to play out um, in this election? We've seen some unprecedented things these past four years. This election, I think we're going to ever going to see anything like this. How do you think this is going to turn out? Are you there? Can you hear me? Yeah. Go ahead. Okay, so if, if his mic is not working, uh, Nate, if you can jump in. Well, as far as the legal battle goes, like you said, uh, Judge Hand ruled that the uh, challengers didn't have standing because uh, Harris County has been using drive-in voting since September. So he's basically saying, why are you coming to me now with this issue? Um, he even, he, one thing that was really interesting is that he said that even if they, he found that they did have standing, he would not have thrown out the disputed ballots, but he would have thrown out uh, drive-in ballots that were cast tomorrow and said, uh, and tried to discourage uh, people in Houston from uh, drive-in voting tomorrow. Uh, now, officially, this isn't over. They might take this to the Fifth Circuit, but standing questions are usually upheld as you go up the line. So the Fifth Circuit would probably, uh, if the Fifth Circuit took it, they'd probably rule. Uh, uh, they'd probably uphold the ruling. Same, uh, but I think it's more likely that they pass. If the Fifth Circuit upholds and they go to the Supreme Court, uh, the court knows that they cannot lose. Uh, they cannot afford the kind of loss of credibility they suffered after. Uh, Bush v. Gore, I think they would probably as well try to pass on it because uh, by hand, effectively determining the outcome of a presidential election in 2000, the Supreme Court lost that veneer, uh, whatever veneer of impartiality they had. And someone like uh, Chief Justice Roberts, who is very concerned with his legacy of trying to maintain uh, the neutrality and objectivity that the court is supposed to be known for, I doubt he's going to want to uh, 
put his finger on the scales in that way. Uh, but I do think the, this case is a really good sign. Uh, the judge that ruled on it is a Bush appointee who is normally known for his uh, conservative uh, decisions. As, like he was, uh, he was the judge actually that set the scale for the uh, ACA discussion that, that the uh, justices are, that the Supreme Court is going to hear next week. Um, so we are seeing good signs from the courts. Uh, this, uh, this is also the same uh, decision. He also upheld a decision that the Texas Supreme Court, which was pretty much all uh, Republican appointees made. So we're not, so this kind of legal battle that the uh, Trump administration is hoping to wage might not be the best option for them. And I'm glad you laid out the landscape as to what we're looking at specifically when it comes down to the Fifth Circuit um, and what kind, what kind of appointees um, you know, are in place that are going to be hearing these cases. Um, so everyone's afraid that 2000 is going to repeat itself because we've saw that it wasn't until I believe the 7th of December that Al Gore conceded that race. Um, and that month was just a month of, of constant tension and everything, but it wasn't, it wasn't anything like what we were seeing in 2020 uh, when you have an ongoing pandemic, racial tension um, all throughout this year and a lot of anxiety uh, about the outcome of this election. And I'm wondering if any of the political pressure will have any kind of influence at all on the court's decisions or the way this legal battle plays out. Cassandra? Um, I think that the fact that we are even having this discussion and the current administration has handled everything so ineptly um, is a bit, not a bit, it's very alarming to me. Um, because what that says to me is that, you know, short of this pandemic, there wouldn't really be a discussion of who would have all the chips. Um, so that scares me a little bit. Um, I think that the fact that we have all been stuck sort of indoors since March means that people have a lot more time to, um, you know, for better or for worse, spend a lot of time on the internet. And um, with all of that, I think people are this time around more or less more informed. And that generally means that they're angrier because they know that this was all avoidable. Um, so I think that we, as we touched on earlier, the turnout for early voting has already surpassed the total voting from 2016. And like, I, I don't want to, necessarily compare the two because it's apples and oranges. 2016, we had a very different like global and national landscape than we do now. But even back then, I don't know if you all remember, it was still pretty fervent. People really wanted to come out and vote. Um, I mean, some people obviously didn't take it seriously. We had so many uh, independent and then some people who did write-ins for Harambe. I don't think we're going to see that as much this time around. We might, we might see a percentage that try to vote for Kanye because uh, I, I've heard members of um, the, the community talking about um, not being happy without their the options, the Democratic or the, Democratic or the Republican um, candidate. Um, but I don't think that's as big of a danger as um, the splitting vote last time was, because now people know, like, you either vote for the winner or it doesn't matter. Um, unfortunately, that's the way that our electoral system works in the United States. So um, to answer your question, I think the pandemic is vastly going to affect it. I think that it's definitely 
the massive failure of this administration that we can all point to. They can't get around that, even if they try to spin it one way or another, and they're trying to mitigate damage that it's done to their image. There's no getting really around it. You know, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. You know, the fact that there's a third, usually sometimes there's a third party contender. Um, when I had Professor Alan Lickman as a guest, he said, you know, there was no serious third party contender this year. And despite folks being concerned about whether Kanye West will pull away votes because he has a uh, celebrity and, and, and whether, you know, you want to think that the Green Party or the Lib Libertarian Party um, may be able to pull some votes, that fear or th that um, risk, I believe, is not as strong as it was four years ago because so, pe so many people are on edge and they're so many people that know that this is a one or the other choice, you know? And I think the fact that the Democrats, you know, early on, one after the other, you saw them quickly, the ones that knew that they were not going to be the nominee, eventually drop out and quickly endorse, um, you know, the eventual nominee. I remember when Amy Klobuchar, uh, Ben O'Rourke, and Pete Buttigieg all decided to endorse Joe Biden at the same event. I believe he was in Texas. That was in March of this year. I think that was really before the national shutdown uh, changed everything. But I think my surprise that evening uh, was at how different it was from the environment in 2016 when you had Bernie Sanders and Clinton duking it out all the way until June or July of 2016. Um, it wasn't even that long before the convention had started uh, that Bernie Sanders officially dropped out the race. But there's such a different environment in 2020. It's more of like an emergency, like everyone just, you know, get play your role and don't mess this up. I think that's kind of the, the feel a lot of people have because the the shock of 2016's results is still in effect today. Uh, Mr. Foster, if you're on, I want to get your thoughts on that, sir. And you're on mute. Go ahead. You've, un you've unmuted me? Okay. Thanks. Yep. Uh, I apologize. Whenever you get dinosaurs on, uh, you know, it's it's uh, we have technical difficulties. Let's put it that way <laughs> and challenges. Um, uh, I'm not. Uh, I'm. Not, I wasn't clear on your question, Mike. I'm sorry, sir. So you know, talking about the, the, you can, the, you can the question. yeah. Yeah. So, you know, and what Cassandra was saying about a third party contender and what I had said about people being more on edge this year, um, wanting to ensure that no one is the cause or no demographic is the cause of uh, a result happening that they didn't want. I'm wondering if you think that this is much a, a much different environment in 2016 when a lot of folks were more willing to take to make a protest vote. Um, there are a lot of people who did not uh, Clinton as the nominee. There are a lot of folks who didn't like Trump as the nominee. Um, and so you saw someone like a, 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 a Gary Johnson enjoy more support than he did in 2012. And I'm wondering if you think the environment, the political environment. Right, right. Is so yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the political environment in 2020 is is definitely different um, than it was in, in 2016. Um Trump, of course, was a challenger then. Um, he was um, he was seen as uh, uh, you know sort of an unknown, but he, but uh, people people uh, sold whatever 
he was selling or they bought whatever he was selling, those who wanted change. Hillary was not seen as a change agent, and uh, she was uh, uh, successfully demonized by Trump. Now it's a whole different situation. Big challenger, um, uh, party uh, challenger on any ballot, except that I did notice that Kanye was polling, I believe, in the 3% range when I looked at the uh, last, I think he's only on the Minnesota ballot. And uh, he was polling about 3% um, in one poll that I saw, which was uh, alarming, to say the least. But um, yeah, the the environment, it's a a totally different environment. I, I I think that's obvious. Um, and I am, uh, of course, relieved that there is no um, significant change anywhere on the ballots. Um, we didn't have to worry about that um, at all. Uh, Bill Stein and uh, Gary Johnson were significant uh, problems uh, in a number of the, uh, the key battleground states. And uh, that is obviously not an issue. Uh, Question. Again, I'm at. Yeah. I think you're breaking up some some instability with my connection. Yeah, yeah, you are. Uh, Christian, if you could just jump in real quick. Yeah, I don't know if you uh, or anyone heard of the grassroots kind of movement unity 2020 it got kind of shut down relatively quickly but it was brett weinstein he was a professor uh his brother is also um graduate of harvard university kind of famous brother duo they've been on the joe rogan podcast some other physics and biology podcasts but they actually tried to come up with a plan similar to the original process to where how you would have a different presidential and vice presidential party. And they had Tulsi Gabbard and I believe Dan Crenshaw were the two that kind of wound up at the end. And that was very interesting. You know, their proposal was four years of one and then four years the other. And you would flip which one was vice president and president. And that got shut down to the point to where their Twitter was actually canceled. So um, I'm not sure what to make of that, but I can definitely tell you that that is quite different than the support that we saw for Gary Johnson in 2016. Yeah, you know, that's a good point. And I wanted to include, you know, in 2016, we're dealing with a pandemic. In 2016, you know, the, the possibility of a Trump presidency uh, was just not a reality uh, for folks. And I, I believe a lot of folks were content knowing that if they did not vote, um, that doesn't mean that Trump will be president. I don't think that really registered with people until they probably saw President President Biden and uh, President-elect Donald Trump in the uh, Oval Office together. Um, I know for me, that was a surreal moment. So, I'm, I'm, you know, when you're looking at all the different factors that- Even, even after the fact, it was right. surreal for me. I thought I was in The Simpsons. <laughs> but, you know, we're, we're talking about, you know, the legal battle. And what's interesting is that in exactly a week until, you know, a week from tomorrow, a week ago tomorrow, um, Amy Coney Barrett was appointed as the 115th Supreme Court Justice on the Supreme Court. 
And now there was, um, and she was immediately faced with uh, the option to recuse herself from an election case that was pending in the state of Pennsylvania, and she did. But I'm wondering if this is just a buildup for what's to come. If she can say, you know, I recused myself from the Pennsylvania election case, but I'm not going to recuse myself from a potential second Supreme Court case from Bush versus Gore. Professor Foster, your thoughts? Um, yeah, my thoughts basically is that regarding the Supreme Court, the damage has already been done. Um, there's a, you know, six to three um, strong conservative um, majority on the court. Uh, even if you discount um, Chief Justice Roberts as uh, a moderate or an establishmentarian, there's still a 5-4 majority on the court. And um, I, I think the most interesting thing will be, to me, if Joe Biden wins and if the Democrats take the Senate, I think it sets up a battle between Congress and the Supreme Court for the next decade. Uh, I think that for the next decade, um, uh, the Supreme Court will be in a position to disqualify much of what Congress seeks to do. And uh, because uh, the Congress has been, at least the Democrats have been, more of the more established establishmentarians, I, I think that the court will flex itself uh, going forward. Say, say, for example, if Roe v. Wade is struck down and a Democratic Congress and a Democratic president does something, uh, proposes and passes something to kind of restore Roe v. Wade, uh, it's still possible that the court could strike that down based on, um, you know, any set of excuses that they, they can come up with. Because the litmus test now for getting on the court, and we talked about this before, has been kind of a religious fidelity to uh, the pro-life position. And um, that, I think, will change the, um, the political makeup of the United States for the next generation. Yep. Chris, jump in. Yeah, and I, I also, along with that, you have to look at the words um, that Mitch McConnell uh, put out just a week ago. When he was talking, when he was speaking right after um, Justice Barrett was um, confirmed, he said basically, you know, all that we did together over the last four years, in some way or another, will be undone um, by the new political reality that he's coming to see. Um, and he's he said what he was saying was is basically the court is the one way in which we can still have a stronghold over political life in America. Because we already know that the Republican Party or the conservative movement, while they did win the 2016 election um, and they did win the Electoral College, it's still not a broadly popular um, sort of political grouping, right? And they know that it's very difficult for them to be able to win the popular vote. Um, it's likely that they're going to lose the Senate. I think it's the, the uh, 538 has um, Democrats 76% chance to win the Senate. They have Biden a 90 90 percent chance of winning um, the presidency, and obviously they're likely to to win the House. And so, in order for 
you know, them to still have some semblance of power, it has to happen in the courts. And just like what Professor Foster was just saying, any legislation that may be proposed or passed can be undone, just like we're seeing almost about to happen with the Affordable Care Act. And so this is this, you know, this is McConnell's and all the, you know, conservatives on the right. This is their ability to be able to wield and control power, even if they don't even have the um, electoral or political votes there. You know, that's interesting that you brought up, you know, the specific uh, policies that would be at stake now uh, with this six to three conservative tilt. Um, and I said this, you know, I was a guest on another podcast this past weekend. And I said, you know, what's interesting is that the Republican side seems to be more uh, intentional about their Supreme Court uh, nomination process in terms of making sure that the folks that are on, when, you look at, when you're looking at Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, Amy Coney Barrett, these are folks that you can see on the court for the next 10 to uh, 20, 30 years. You know, um, these are folks that are going to be not just deciding jurisprudence for the 2020s, but probably until the 2040s or 50s. Um, and so, you know, when you're looking at, you know, these Supreme Court battle. It's, it, to me, this whole domination process took place so quick and there was so much news going on that it, it was kind of like something that was pulled under the nose of, of the public, I think, because you've got a virus, you've got an election, you know, you can't get away from even going on Instagram and seeing, you know, go to the polls and vote, register to vote today. And so much is going on at the same time that this was just, I think, just one in mo a multitude of news stories that was going on. But, you know, to your point, Chris, you know, when we're looking at these policies and, and how they're going to play out, even if there is a blue wave like we're hearing, you know, Nate Silver, as you pointed, gave Biden a 90 percent chance uh, of becoming the 46th president of the United States and Trump a 10 percent chance of being reelected the 45th president. But at the same time, in 2016, uh, Nate Silver indicated that Clinton had a 71.4 percent chance of being the next president. And and Trump had a 28.6% chance. And I was listening to a pollster and she said, you know, what's interesting is that four years ago, we were so focused on that larger number, you know, because that seemed like the more probable uh, thing that was going to happen. But nobody really paid attention to that 28.6%. But in this election, everyone's focusing on that 10% that Nate Silver has. And the 90% is something that they're like, you know, we're, we're not getting confident about that. Let's not get cocky about that. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. But, you know, as it relates to Mitch McConnell and, you know, the statement he made on the Senate floor about the, the, the Supreme Court, you know, I'm wondering how this is going to play out with a Supreme Court that's very major, uh, majority conservative um, and a, a potential um, House and, and, and White House that is Democratic. You're not going to have a trifecta like you did in 2016. Um, Garrison, I was curious to get your thoughts as to how do you think, if things go in that way, how do you think uh, the next four years will look? If, um, like, Trump remains president or if Biden remains president, how the Supreme Court will look in the next couple of years? Oh, no, I'm sorry. If the Supreme Court, you know, what as it is right now, six to three conservative majority, um, you know, goes ahead with jurisprudence in the next four years, how is that going to play out with a potential Democratic Senate and a Democratic president and a Democratic House? I mean, it's, it's definitely going to be a battle back and forth, but as, as to how far, like how much head ground either one would make, 
I don't know. I mean, I feel like a lot of the times it, it definitely comes down to what the people think. And wherever a lot of decisions come down to is, and I know this isn't really a factor with Supreme Court, but on the House and the Senate and the floor and everything it is, they're going to base their stuff off what's going to keep them in a seat of power, not necessarily the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court is going to make whatever decision they want to make um, within each other. I mean, if there's more conservatives, there's more conservatives, there's less, and if there's more Democrats, there's more Democrats. But right now, I, I don't know. It's tough to say. Chris, I mean, Christian, your thoughts? This is actually interesting. Um, I had a class in at Campbell University, um, and we read a book on whether divided or united governments actually make a difference. And when you take a meta-analysis, just overview look, it doesn't really make a difference considering the nature of our political um, structure. The gridlock is kind of inherent. There has been war between, you know, just constant war, different phases of it between the judicial and, and legislative branch. But when it comes down to it, it's such a complex system, especially since the creation of the administrative office of the president, that it really doesn't matter. Uh, Cassandra, do you agree? Um, could you repeat the part of the question? I'm sorry. Oh, he, he basically was saying that, you know, no matter if you have a democratic, a blue wave potentially, you know, which is what a lot of polls are showing um, with Biden in the White House and the Senate being in democratic control and the House remaining in democratic hands, but you have a six to three conservative majority, uh, what you're going to see is just more gridlock, especially like Chris had pointed out, you know, the Affordable Care Act is on the ballot. Um, but at the same time, it seems like it's out of the control of the voters to a degree because the Affordable Care Act case and, and you know, immigration case and all of these cases will be determined by a body that's not elected, you know, um, and the majority of them, six of them are, you know, you kind of know which degree, which, which, which direction they're going to go. Um, I'm wondering if you agree that, you know, even if things work out according to the Democrats favor this November, I mean, tomorrow, um, that, you know, you're still going to see not much progressive change because of the Supreme Court that's in place. Yeah, unfortunately, I think that this was McConnell's long game and he won. Like, I think that we, you know, strategically have a long game ahead of us if we're going to try to fix something like this. I personally think that the fact that the courts have a 63 pretty consistent conservative majority is going to have vast impacts on us um, for at least another 20 years. Um it's going to be, I think, if the Democrats are able to retain a majority after this election for however many cycles, there's going to be a lot of push and pull between like the court saying, you know, this isn't constitutional, rewrite it this way, and then they're going to try to rewrite it, and then it's going to be pushed back for another reason or another. I, I foresee that being one of the biggest struggles if we manage to um, have a changeover administration and for some reason it's able to go smoothly. I think that's going to be a long, uh, a long-term issue that the Democrats are going to have to address. Um, 
I, I think that what you mentioned earlier about the conservatives having more strategy, being more strategic about placing people on the court is right. And I think now we're dealing with the consequences of Democrats not having that foresight. And I think, you know, when I said that, you know, I was thinking of the fact that you had Ginsburg, you know, as wonderful and as beloved as she was, you know, I started to wonder, you know, when the Democrats had the Senate in the House in 2009 and 2010, why didn't she step down and allow a younger progressive judge to take her place? You know, that would be, you know, going on for the next decade or, or more. Um, but when you look at Republicans like Kennedy, this uh, Republican appointee like Kennedy, the summer of 2018, he stepped down and it was kind of like, you know, out of the blue. Um, when, when he stepped down, it paved the way for uh, a Kavanaugh, you know, so it seems like they're more intentional. And I'm, I'm wondering if that's going to be their downfall, if there's another way that the progressives can get an agenda passed, or if, you know, the conservatives have played checkmate. Mr. Foster, go ahead and meet yourself. Yeah, the, it, there's a lot of irony here because, of course, the uh, conservatives have been uh, their, their main talking point in uh, appointing uh, people to the federal judiciary is that they want wanted people who were going to just um, uh, interpret the Constitution and not override the legislative branch and make law themselves. But now they are dependent on the judiciary to be activists. They're dependent on the, if that is the uh, Democrats uh, get into a unitary gov governmental uh, control situation where they uh, control both houses of Congress and the presidency, uh, they, the, the, the conservatives will be dependent on an activist Congress. I'm, I'm sorry, an activist judiciary. Um, that is that is the real long game, um, and it's also interesting uh, that I uh, well let, let, let me make a prediction: if and when the Affordable Care Act is um, uh, abolished, basically, uh, and that will probably happen this summer. Uh, when the when the Supreme Court issues all of its uh, all of its rulings on on cases that it's hearing, uh, starting uh, well the cases that it's already started hearing uh, in October, but uh, if if the Affordable Care Act is um, abolished, that will be the impetus for uh, the Democrats if they are in full control of of the. Uh, the Senate, the, the House, and and the presidency, to uh, then expand the Supreme Court. That will be that will be the motivator. Uh, that uh, Biden will take that as a personal affront, uh, having uh, having been a um, having been in the in the Obama administration, and 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 uh, I don't think anything similar that they can pass. Um, will 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 make it uh uh so i just i just think that they will they will that will be the motivator for them to uh stack the court as it will as, as you as it were in, in order to uh regain a balance uh, they'll they'll 
they'll get rid of the filibuster, which is the which was the problem. Um, uh, Harry Reid got rid of the filibuster for judicial nominations uh, um, during the Obama administration because McConnell was stifling every one of his uh, uh, appointments or trying to, and uh, the frustration led led to Harry Reid, of course, getting rid of the filibuster for judicial nominations, but they didn't get rid of it for Supreme Court nominations. Then when McConnell got control, he did he got rid of it for Supreme Court nominations as well. Um, and that's the only way that uh, for sure Kavanaugh got on. Um, but in, in any case, I, I think uh, um, the, 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 uh, the turning down of the Affordable Care Act or the abolishment of the Affordable Care Act by the Supreme Court, uh, which I definitely anticipate uh, with a six-three majority, um, will be the will be the catalyst that will um, cause the Democrats almost force them to uh, expand the Supreme Court next year. And you know, expanding the Supreme Court will such a controversial uh, uh, topic this year, it seemed. Uh, and I was really surprised at first with the Democrats' response. At first, uh, you know, they looked like they didn't want to respond to the question. And, and, and when you saw Pence debate Harris, he was asked about health care. And he turned, he turned the question into one about packing the Supreme Court, you know, and Harris fell for it. Harris walked right into the trap. Nate, I want to get your uh, response and take on whether you think or what do you think the Democrats response to uh, packing the Supreme Court should be? Should they shy away from it? I've said on this platform, I said, look, regardless of whether Biden is for or against it, it's ultimately up to Congress. If I were in Biden's position and I didn't want to answer that question affirmatively, I would just say, look, ask your ask your Senate candidates, ask your House candidates. They're the ones that ultimately have the vote on this thing. You know, I'll do whatever. Um, I'm, I'm the executive, you know, I'm running for the executive position, the chief executive position. I'm going to just enforce what it is that they passed or I'm going to. Re what is your take on that, Nate? Well, I agree with you that Kamala fell into that uh, court packing trap, but I did like her answer on it, which was that uh, the Trump administration has set a record for most judges considered unqualified by the American Bar Association. I do agree that the courts need to be expanded. Litigation is supposed to be accessible. And we hear about. Uh, in law school, we hear about all these jurisdictions where litigation takes forever because of the sheer number of cases that are being passed in states like California, for example. Um, the reason the Supreme Court is nine justices in the first place is because the amount of uh, courts, uh, circuit courts of appeal was expanded to nine. We have 12 circuit courts of appeal now. We probably need at least two or three more. So yeah, we should expand the courts. We need uh, uh, the most vulnerable in our society to be, have an avenue to say, hey, something was done to me that, that I believe was wrong and I need redress for it. Um, but yes, that's what the answer should be. Uh, we, we should expand the courts because we need uh, people to have that avenue for them if they want to take it. We need the courts, we need our court system, we need the people's court system to be accessible. Uh, Garrison, I'm curious to know if you agree or if you disagree as to whether or not uh, court expansion should even be on the table. For something like that to be approved, what would it have to go through? 
Um, well, I'll have to get approval from Congress. When FDR, uh, Franklin Roosevelt, tried to get it enacted, it was the uh, he tried to pack the courts, I believe, by even more than nine. He, I think he was trying to get about 15 or 14 justices on the court. Um, but regardless, he'll have to go through Congress. And Congress blocked him. And so um, this was during um, the era with the New Deal program. And so um, the court at the time had blocked some of his New Deal initiatives. And so his solution to that was trying to pack the court with judges that would be more sympathetic or um, in alignment with his his uh, judicial philosophy that would approve of his programs. Of course, that didn't get passed. But I'm wondering if you would think that today in 2020, you know, 2021 come regard, you know, if there's a new Biden Harris administration. Do you believe that, you know, it would be fine or right for them to consider packing the Supreme Court? given that there's a three tilt. I would be fine with the court expanding, but I don't think it should be packed um, by one president. I think it should be, if anything, like let's say Biden wins this election, he should be able to pick maybe one candidate and the next time there's a Republican um, president that and there's, and there's need for an expansion again, that's when it should happen. I think it sh should, there should be some fairness to it. Not just one president. Once the president gets elected, let's just pack it full of my party's guys. I think it should. Have, I, I and I know, but I do think it should probably be like an odd number, like it is now with nine. I don't think it should be like ten. Professor Foster, you look like you're jumping to get in. I just it's, it's baffling to me. This president, President Trump, put three people on the court. Put one person on the court one week before the election, the court has been packed in front of our very eyes. We're living in a post-establishment, post-traditional era. The Democrats are the last to uh, realize that. Uh, the Democrats keep posing, the Democrats have become the small seat conservatives. They're the ones trying to act out of tradition. Those traditions are gone. Um, Donald Trump has broken through the, all of those traditions. And so now we're in an era where the new, um, the new uh, era of establishment will be established. And I think that that's the challenge of the Democratic Party. Unless the Democratic Party moves uh, affirmatively and strongly to put in place an agenda and to re-establish re the foundations of this democracy, that's when you will have the atrophy, uh, unless they do that, there'll be an atrophy of young people voting. You have to give people something to vote for. You need to have to give women something to vote for. You need to give poor white men something to vote for. And um, uh, this small C conservatism that the Democratic Party is wishing for the era of statesmen and all of that. I mean, have you seen Mitch McConnell? Have you seen um, uh, Lindsey Graham? They're, these are not uh, statesmen. These are not people who have stood by any traditions uh, that our government has been has run on. And uh, so now we've got to establish a new establishment. I do want to say one other thing about uh, the courts and the lack of democratic purpose purposefulness on the court. Uh, uh, to me, Barack Obama blew an opportunity. Instead of nominating Garland, Garland Merritt, he should have nominated a black female. That would have made 
what the Republicans did seemed to be um, more partisan, or at least it would have, would, excuse me, would have appeared to be as partisan as it was. Um, so I, I think that, again, the, Dem the Democrats trying to be, you know, he nominated Garland Merrick, a white male, moderate, he thought would be acceptable. You're playing with gangsters. You cannot negotiate with gangsters. You have to be gangsters with gangsters. Uh, Christian, do you agree? Oh, sorry. I, I, well, I had a previous question. I'll try to remember it. But right then, why do you say that he should have nominated a black woman? Because, again, it would have, would have made what they did to Garlic Merritt seem uh, less politically acceptable for them it would have made them appear to be racist. That's, um, Professor, that, I'm- Racist. To me. But very intelligent, but it does. Yeah, well, I'm not afraid of that because we're dealing with racists. So I'm, I'm not shying away from dealing with racists in a racist way, politically. On, on a personal basis, yes, I won't, I won't be racist. But when I'm dealing with people who are politically you. racist, I will I, deal with them as they are. Fair, fair point. Yeah, I wanted to say, Professor, thank you for saying that because I, um, I found it less and less tolerable to figure that um, Democrats should try to keep continue taking the high road and being accepting of everyone and just tolerant of this, tolerant of that. If only we can get everyone on the same page and acting sanely, we can do this by the book like we used to. You know, I um, I don't believe that really ever worked. I think that that's a really milquetoast way for people who are in power or have some like moderate power um, stay comfortable rather than really doing their job for us as representatives. Um, and so, um, yeah, I, I agree. I understand what the concern is with the idea of like um, an incoming Biden uh, presidency, quote unquote, stacking the courts and the appearance it might have of being bi bipartisan. But like, why are we concerned about bipartisanship when the other um, part of our bicameral system has completely abandoned any pretense of trying to act in faith? Like, if we don't believe that they're going to act in good faith, um, why should we keep extending that grace instead of, like, you know, uh, gloves off, bare buckle brawling? Like, <laughs> that's what we're at right now. And if we keep being like, you know, cry uncle, like, they're not going to stop. So we need to be more responsive to the reality that we're in. And if that reality is they've stacked the courts right in front of us, then we should respond in kind to bring true neutrality or true like balance back that people in the electorate can believe in. Otherwise, we're precariously at the point where people do not believe that this government works. I mean, a lot of us already don't, but like it, it really is precarious more so than I feel like it ever has been. Gary, jump in man. Yeah, so I have a couple of thoughts here. First, let me um, get to what the professor says. I, I, I agree with you, um, not necessarily with the idea that we should just put a black woman there. What, what I think Obama should have done is he should have put somebody there that was aligned with, I think, the liberal cause, um, that was aligned with 
uh, what would I kind of excited the base? Because what I think he did with Merrick Garland is he said, well, this is a moderate uh, judge who could be, you know, digestible to Republicans. He should have went with somebody who is going to stand on the shoulders of Ginsburg or Thurgood Marshall. And what that would have done for Hillary um, is that, you know, in 2016, the reason why the never Trumpers came over and supported Trump was because Trump was able to be very persuasive to Republicans about the Supreme Court. And if Obama would have nominated a person that would have the base, and said, that you know, if I win, I'm gonna nominate this person. But if you come out and support me, we're gonna um, a lot more. And that argument of whether or not 2016, like I think Hillary might have won if Obama would have nominated somebody that could have kind of excited the base, um, especially for the people who were not fans of Hillary. I think the second part is I'm talking about the the court stacking. You know, I, I might you know upset some people, but I I. I actually think Republicans are right on, 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 on this argument. I don't think we should be stacking the court. I, I think, you know, in a constitution, it doesn't say anywhere in constitution that there has to be nine justices. Um, but I think if we stack the court, what we run the risk of doing is, you know, if Biden stacks it to what, 11 judges, then the next Republican gonna come in maybe in four years, eight years, and then they add two or three more judges. So like, when would this stacking the court stop? I think in the alternative, the best thing probably to do is to look at the way that we set up our um, appellate system, which is, you know, the problem for us right now is it's not that we want, re there's no plus things Republican or or liberal judges. Um, the question is, you know, how will they interpret statutes and how they interpret the constitution? Right now we have a lot of uh, textualists yeah, and new textualists here. on the Supreme Court. <laughs> <laughs> more aligned with the liberal interpretation of the constitution and statutes. I think what you have on in the appellate circuit is you have like a panel, right? You have maybe like, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, you have like 27, 30 judges on the appellate circuit. And for every case, they're like randomly drawn, right? So these five judges who are randomly drawn out of these 30 judges will, will hear this case, right? I, I think if we move towards a system like that, where you have a a group of judges, in every case would be a group of seven judges or nine judges that are randomly pulled from that panel, um, that is that looks more like our um, you know like our um, appellate courts. I think that makes more sense. But I think it's very short sighted to say, you know, when Biden comes to office, you know, let him appoint two judges. To make that 11 and you're still going to be down six to five so do you want to move to 13 where now we're trying to push through you know four or five or six judges and then what's going to stop republicans from doing the same so that's a never-ending cycle i think that's very short-sighted so i think that we need to look at um you know um some of our appellate circuits and how they have this panel there and it's all randomly drawn um out of a group of 20 or 15 judges uh, for every single case. So I think that's a better way to do it. So I, I think Kamala should have shut down these discussions about stacking the court. It's important for her because as we're talking about, Mike, the Senate races, Democrats just need three seats, pick up three seats to get the 50. Because if Kamala is the VP, then now we have the the um, majority because she's the president of, of, you know, she'd be over the Senate. 
so, you know, my entire viewpoint is I think that we should not be stacking the court. I think we should be articulating a new way um, for, you know, th that uh, system of look. Um, and get back to the professor's point, I, I agree in, in the standpoint that we should have never put forth a moderate judge. We should have put somebody that would have excited the base. So Hillary could have had that same argument Trump had, which was, if you don't like me, fine, but here's the Supreme Court and this is why it's important. This is how we got to move forward. So there's a lot to unpack because, and I'm Jerry, Jerry, I'm glad you brought, you know, the importance of appellate uh, court level, the appellate circuit level. Um, because when we're looking at packing the courts, the discussion seems to focus mainly on Supreme Court packing. But we, we often don't hear much about the amount of judges on the district court level and the appellate court level that Obama should have had the opportunity to fill in uh, in 2016 um, and that Trump has filled in. And I think Trump has filled in a record number of amount of uh, appellate and district court judges in. But before I transition, I wanted to know if there are any other thoughts on this before we move on to the last professor. Yeah, just quickly, um, I'm for packing the Supreme Court because it is the Supreme Court. It's where all appeals end up. Um, and the appellate, the, the appellate uh, system has been packed as well. But again, ultimately, all appeals will come to the Supreme Court and they can do as they wish because that is the last stop in the judicial system. And the Supreme Court is in the era, especially in the era of a dysfunctional Congress, the most uh, powerful part of our government. Yeah, can I say something, Professor, but, but what would stop Republicans from doing the same when they get back in power? I, 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 that's really not my concern. I will play hardball until the hardball stops. I'm not trying to be reasonable with Republicans anymore. I don't, I don't, I don't. I want to argue that we had the same approach with a filibuster years ago. And then he came back and, and bit us when McConnell got into power. Right. So McConnell have done a lot of things really because stuff that we did when we were in power, it was kind of short-sighted. So, you know, if, if we move this, you know, add two judges and we're still down six to five, where they still have the majority, you know, what's stopping them from saying, Hey, I got to add two more. In 2028, I mean, yeah, 2028 or 2032, you know. So I, I think we got to look, you know, towards that too. You could always amend the constitution to limit the number of, court, of seats in the court. You could do that. If I could, I'd say that's a 2028 problem. You know, um, uh, Senator Reid uh, addressing the filibuster worked for the situation. He said, I'm, this is what we need to do right now in order to get to where we need to go. McConnell saw that and he said, okay, now I'm going to play hardball too. I mean, McConnell played hardball and it seems that that hardball is going to its logical conclusion, which is that he is going to, which is that it's looking very likely that uh, come January, he's going to hand over the majority leadership to someone else, uh, pr presumably Chuck Schumer or whoever the Democrats choose. Um, but that's a problem that we need to worry about then and probably just focus on, hey, we know what's at stake now. We need to not take these things for granted as much anymore because 2016, uh, the Democratic Party did not do a good enough job of saying, hey, the Supreme Court is at stake. And what that means is that the Affordable Care Act is at stake. Uh, DACA is at stake. Uh, Roe versus Wade is at stake. Reproductive freedom is at stake. The environment is at stake uh, because of that, these are all things that the court has ruled on in the past and is looking forward to ruling on again. So 
play hardball now and worry about the consequences later. It's what's worked for the Republicans so far. There's no indication to say it wouldn't work for Democrats as well. I, I want to transition a little bit because this has been a, a, a wild election, folks. This has been a wild election. And with every election, there's always that defining moment or that one moment that pundits and historians look back to um, and pinpoint and say, well, this moment really changed the tide. This point, this point of the election really changed it. For 2012, Hurricane Sandy, I think, was that thing. Um, and you also had the 47% comment, Mitt Romney. Um, but in 2016, there was it was so different in 2016 because what would have been the moment was the Access Hollywood tape. Um, but of course, because we saw folks like even Paul Ryan jump ship and Pence even came out with a statement. Um, but you also had Hillary Clinton call Trump supporters deplorables. A lot of folks say that there was a mistake. A lot of folks say, no, she should have actually hammered more on that. Um, you know, in 2020, I want to go around and get each of your thoughts as to what you think the moment in this election was. And this is going to be the last question for the evening. Uh, I'm going to start with Chris. Well, I'll say that the the moment that has defined this election um, actually started in, in March, which was COVID, COVID-19. Um, basically, when uh, COVID had overtaken the country and we started to shut down, that was at the tail end of the primary election on the Democratic side. And what it caused um, Bernie Sanders to do was to have to drop out sooner, which I think he was going to do because he didn't want to um, kind of like uh, allow, allow for the primary election to linger any further. So that happened then. And then um, most of the country had to, folks were losing jobs. Um, you had folks on the bread line. Um, you got universities shut down. You have governments needing federal aid. And you know so much has happened. And Trump's response and his inability to take responsibility for um, handling the virus it really has cost him, right? We are now 200 and what is it, 230,000 people who have passed um, over what 10 million people who have contracted the virus, and it's you know the, the numbers are continuing to surge now. And as 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 sharp as those numbers continue to increase, you start to see Trump's poll numbers decrease, right? And prior to 2020, um, one of the things that uh, Trump was able to you know kind of hold high for his reelection bid was his economy. And he was saying this is the greatest economy. He's built the greatest economy in the world, disregarding all the um, improvements and um, pro progress that the Obama administration um, had created in order to help us get to this point. But that economy is no longer strong, right? There are millions of people who are filing for unemployment weekly. There are millions of people who whose jobs or, or their businesses have gone under and haven't gotten enough aid or relief to to really rescue themselves. And so. That has been the thing. COVID-19 has been the thing that has been looming over this election that even Donald Trump has been trying to spin, but he can't because lives and science is real. Numbers are real. And um, unfortunately, you know, I, I think that it's 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 somewhat of a good thing that this is this may be what brings him um, out of the office. But it's also unfortunate that it costs our country 230, 230,000 people. Um, beautiful, precious lives who are no longer going to be at the dinner table on Thanksgiving and no longer be able to wrap gifts on Christmas because of his inability to to act and be responsible as a president. So I think that's the defining characteristic of this election. 
Yeah, and, you know, I honestly think this is go down as the COVID election, you know. that You know, you really can't point <laughs> to an election where a crisis really just swallowed up the whole year. Um, but Cassandra, I want to get your thoughts as to what you think the defining moment was. Chris mentioned the COVID. Um, I'm going to say that I agree with Chris on this, but in a way, I feel like the moment you're trying to describe doesn't really exist, which is why I'm a little alarmed. You know, like this has been a parade of mismanagement and errors. And we're still at a point where we're anxiously awaiting what we think may or may not happen. Which, in any reasonable world, this should be definitive. It should show that our government has failed us. So we deserve to have a government turnover. And I think that's the general sentiment. But that doesn't necessarily mean that our electoral um, system is going to be responsive to that. So that um, alarms me. Um, Chris said it was uh, 230,000 people and counting our dead. Uh, 9-11, there were 3,000 casualties. And that drastically changed our national um, policies, our foreign policy, our policy on torture, our policy on terrorism. You know, like we had a huge national trauma that we responded to in some ways, maybe like overboard, but we responded, you know? And the, I, I don't think that mentally it's connected so, to many people yet that this is a travesty of, you know, multiple proportions over anything that was as terrible as 9-11 or the Vietnam War even, like we are and counting. And this is happening in our own country through negligence. The fact that this atrocity has happened and we're still at this point talking about it, it, it I have no words for how upset it makes me. <laughs> Um, Christian, I want to get your thoughts as to what you think, uh, you know, what you may have thought, you know, watching this election unfold between 2019 and now, primary season till now. Um, if there are any moments that stood out to you um, that really changed the tide one way or the other, um, Cassandra, you mentioned, go ahead, sir. Yeah. Now you're fine. I apologize. Uh, I, I'd like to lighten the mood a little bit. Um, I agree with everything that's been said. Let's flip this and just say, some chance Trump wins. I would say the moment that you could look back to way back was the first time he mentioned the word fake news, because that completely changed the landscape in this country. That's a good point. Um, Professor Foster? Oh, you're muted, sir. I'm sorry. I agree with both what Christian and Chris said. Um, I think they're both notable. I will just add, just because my brother and I are the dinosaurs on here, the, the, the parallel, the only time that I can think of where an issue lasted as long as COVID was the Iran hostage crisis in uh, 1979, 1980. That colored the whole campaign, kind of like COVID does now. Of course, it was was not nearly as tragic. Uh, Jimmy Carter brought them home all alive, but it did cost him his presidency. Uh, but I think Christian's point about fake news is real because fake news, I think, is what has enabled um, Corona to be viewed as a hoax still to this day by some Americans. 
And, and I'm glad you brought that out because even in the documentary uh, that has been released on Netflix pertaining to social media, I think it's called The Social Dilemma, um, it indicates what kind of uh, last, lasting effect, damaging lasting effect, um, you know, this whole terminology of fake news has and, and the connotations behind it. Because if you have an electorate that can't even trust the news they're getting, um, what is what kind of detriment? I mean, what kind of detrimental impacts is that having for democracy? And, you know, the media has been called the fourth estate, the fourth branch of government uh, for so many years. But now you have a situation where if I'm getting my news from Fox or if I'm getting my news from CNN and MSNBC, I'm only going to look for certain sources that align with either of those networks pertaining to my own liking. Um, and when you have a situation like COVID or any other crisis where there is no political skew one way or the other, but despite that, there there are folks who are trying to portray this thing as a, make this thing political. Mask wearing became political. Uh, whether or not you wear a mask was determinative of whether you stand on one eye, one side of the line or the other. In, um, in, that's a dangerous. Go ahead. In more ways than one, you could say it's, and it has been described like this in the past, but not for nefarious reasons like we're going into now. A shadow branch. That's interesting. Nate, I want to get your thoughts, man. In my opinion, the uh, defining moment of this uh, election wasn't this calendar year, but last year when a brave individual in the White House uh, came forward and said the president of the United States was so afraid to face Joe Biden that he tried to solicit help from a foreign country. Before a single vote had been casted in any primary, that was the moment to me that I knew Joe Biden was probably going to become a nominee because every Democratic candidate was going to have to say, Donald Trump tried to cheat in this election because he didn't want to play, face Joe Biden. Uh, and that's when Joe Biden's numbers started to increase, even when we saw those, uh, even early on when uh, he saw some disappointments in Iowa and New Hampshire, uh, there was still that whole impeach, there was still the impeachment going on, which centered on did Donald Trump solicit aid from a foreign country because he did not want to face Joe Biden. Now, I don't think Biden did a good enough job of playing into that this summer and this past few months, but that to me was the moment it looked, it became very clear that it was going to be Trump-Biden. When Trump tried to uh, solicit a, a foreign country that the US is normally aligned with for dirt on his on an opponent that had not even been selected yet because he did not want to have to run up against Joe Biden. That's interesting. And, and you know, the impeachment proceeding is almost forgettable now that we're dealing with COVID in, in, in November of 2020. Um, Mr. Foster, if you're with us, give us your thoughts, sir. I think I think he's having a little bit of problems. Um, but Jerry, go, go right ahead. Yeah, for me, I think the, the moment really was November 10th, 2016. I think most people remember how they felt that morning, how they felt trying to grasp this new reality of Donald Trump being the president of the United States. And we saw it with the Women's March right away uh, that next January. So, you know, I, I don't know if it was necessarily COVID or him being impeached or all the crazy stuff that he did. But I think a lot of people, November 10th, 2016, had, was already looking forward to tomorrow and they just been waiting for four years. So this energy has, we, people have been waiting for tomorrow for, for years. And the fact that he has just been so incompetent and has led to really the, the just embarrass this country is why we have seen, you know, so, 
such a high voter turnout. Um, but to kind of narrow the question with this particular election, I, I think South Carolina really changed things for me um, because to see the Democratic Party really get behind one person that quickly, and it gave Joe Biden the opportunity to really start to organize a campaign and, and really kind of um, widen um, his his general election campaign where he had the entire party behind him, where in 2016, Hillary didn't have that. You know, was in a nomination, um, the convention, and she was getting booed, right? And people still split, and people still split to this day. So the fact to, to see, you know, Bernie drop out, to see everybody drop out, and really, like, generally throw their support around him, um, really, I think, helped him organize a campaign. Because I think that if this was a very toxic campaign that got dragged out into June or July, I think that would have been very hard to get, you know, the party together uh, to take on Trump um, tomorrow, because as we've seen, the Republicans are behind him. Like, this is their Obama. Like, they are behind him 100%. Um, So I, I think for this election, I think South Carolina changed everything to see people get behind Biden and to generally throw his, their support around him so early, I really think it set him up to actually run a very, very great campaign that he did this year. And Garrison, I'm going to get your thoughts, sir. Um, as your fake news correspondent, um, I think that, uh, yeah, fake news was a, is a thing. Um, but overall, I think when it comes to presenting facts and everything, it's going – they're getting them from a source. They're getting them from someone they know inside the White House, from CDC officials, whoever. But overall, throughout this campaign, I think the biggest thing that probably stood out to me was that very first presidential debate. We saw a Democrat and a Republican. Now, this probably was started with Trump and his rhetoric, but we saw them both going at each other, at each other's necks. When people talk about um, debates, oftentimes it comes up the Kennedy-Nixon debate. This, I feel like, was one of those debates where it will go down probably in the history books as eye-opening to the American people as to these are what politicians can and sometimes are, that they're just, they can be two white men arguing and ready to throw fists if it comes down to it. Even Joe Biden said he would do that. So I think that's what stood out to me probably the most out of this entire election cycle. And I'm glad you brought that up. I was actually going to indicate that. But there were many moments, you know, as we're wrapping up. Um, one moment that stands out to me, too, is, you know, when Trump used the uh, the guards at his disposal to uh, throw tear gas at folks in Washington, D.C., uh, to hold up a Bible in front of a church. I think a lot, the imagery that was intended behind that photo uh, had a ironically different uh, meaning. Um, you had mentioned, Garrison, the first debate. I, I think, you know, and one of the things I'm, I'm so happy to have this debate, I mean, this whole episode was, is that we can have a civil disagreement. You know, I disagree. I think that Trump had created the toxic environment we saw. And I think it was indicative of when you had the next week or whenever they had the dueling town halls. Um, he was with Sudan, Susanna Guthrie and it was a completely different environment. He was almost debating and fighting with Susanna Guthrie while Joe Biden was having more of a cordial, traditional conversation with the uh, moderator in that situation. And I think that was indicative of the fact that Trump had created this environment. And Trump, uh, I think, wasn't trying to let Biden get a word in. You know, he was constantly, you constantly heard his mouth running like a motor. Um, 
But I think that in this election, you know, Chris really hit the nail on the head. COVID-19 swallowed up the coverage. So COVID-19, the death rate, the amount of cases that have we've been experiencing uh, as a nation, um, and the lack of a unified national approach, I think will go down as the determining factor as to how and why this election turned out the way, regardless of what happens. You know, it's not guaranteed the Democrats would win, even though polls indicate otherwise. But no matter what happens, I think this will go down as a pandemic election. But, um, you know, I really had fun tonight, honestly. I thank each of you for the contributions you made. Professor Foster, Nate Honore, Cassandra Knopf, Christian, Chris Johnson, Jerry Ford, Garrison, Christian Evans. And I want to just pause and I want to thank Christian Evans and Garrison. This is my first time having them on. I've had each of the others on, but I just want to thank you all for being a part of this. Um, I didn't get to give your intros, but, you know, you're both very accomplished gentlemen in your own right. Um, and I'm glad that you were able to share your views um, on the pro on the podcast. Uh, I want to also thank Mr. Stephen Foster, Mackenzie Boyd. I know she had some connection problems. Hopefully we can have her for the autopsy <laughs> of the election. But, you know, I want to just go ahead and close out. This was supposed to be my last uh, broadcast uh, for the uh, series of discussions I've had. Um, I started this pro this project in July of this year. And when I started it, it started pretty funny. Uh, my brother <clears throat> said, you know, we're looking at the news and we're looking at Trump. And I'm just, I said, he says, he looks at me and he smiles. And he says, what if you can transport to November 4th of 2020 and you see that Trump was reelected? What would you do if you can go back to now? And this was July again. And he's, I said, well, I would create some kind of platform to have discussions. I'll create a broadcast, a podcast or something. And so he said, so you know what to do and you're not doing it. <laughs> and I had nothing to say. So that's why I started this. And so I'm glad to have, you know, this series of discussion where we can have folks who are independent, who have not made up their minds, conservatives, uh, liberal, progressive, moderates. And I'm glad that we were able to have discussions um, that I think, highlighted points that a lot of times the media didn't cover. I think that we were able to bring perspectives that weren't shared in a lot of uh, different venues. And I, and I really appreciate that. Um, but I would announce that this won't be my last. Um, I'm going to have a episode after the election, and then I'm going to pause and pick it up in December. <laughs> so it's going to be interesting. I want to thank each of you for what you've brought to the table. I had fun. At times it could be a little tentious, but it's all adding to the the interest, the, the interest. And, you know, we're all passionate about this country. And I just want to thank you all for the contribution you made and encouraging folks to also be engaged with the political process. A lot of folks feel like they have to be apathetic. They have to give up. You know, there's noise on both sides and we don't want to, you know, take a position either way because not either, either one is not a hundred percent in agreement with what we want. I thank each of you for, you know, reminding folks that, you know, we still have a stake in this. Um, we still have to perform a civic duty and vote. And the election is going to be tomorrow. And what we're going to see is that even in the midst of a tragedy, <clears throat> the oldest democracy in the world is going to be at work. And I love to see it. It's like the Olympics for me. So thank you all. With that being said, I'm going to go ahead and conclude this broadcast. <laughs>